I don't see too many technical founders who know much about AI in the education space. People just use GPT and they build something which takes me three hours to build and they make it a company. And when I look at all that, <laughs> I shake my head and I'm like, dude, I can copy you in four hours, right? Welcome friends to Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who do we got today, Caitlin? Today we have Deepak Zucker. He is the CEO and founder of Prof Gem. Prof Gem is a AI-enabled avatar curriculum company to help kids, corporations, anyone who wants to learn through interactive video. And Deepak is not a lifelong educationalist. He actually started as a electrical engineer whose first company was a robotic salad making company that he sold to DoorDash. So he's a true technologist that has been able to marry his love of, of AI with pushing forward the bounds of learning for all. Welcome to Obviously the Future, Deepak. It's great to have you here. I want to start with not where you're at currently, but where you were before, because uh, Chowbotics was one of the first robotics-based food startups. I feel like the robotics field has taken a definite backseat to AI in the current hype cycle. But what do you think about robotics? What's the timeline looking like? Where do you see where that field is headed? Yeah, with robotics, I still am connected because I do have people calling me every month, asking me to help them with advice and serving on their board and all. I try to stay out of it. I think of a startup as a baby. If you have your own baby to worry about, you can't babysit other people's babies. I don't normally take on board roles and stuff in other companies. But as far as robotics goes, the Silicon Valley VC community has moved away from hardware in a pretty big way. There's hardly anyone who invests in hardware right now. And the few who invest in hardware, it's very competitive to get that investment as well. And historically, hardware returns have been lower than SaaS returns. So I can understand the situation. As far as where robotics will go long term, I think robotics will see a resurgence in the next five to 10 years, mainly because now robots can actually listen to you. They can understand what you're saying because speech to text has gotten so good. Robots can now talk realistically as well. You can now have robots navigate thanks to the driverless car work. So I think robots will see a resurgence. It's going to take five plus years. And I think the people who are going to win in robotics are going to be the big companies. The way I think about it is hardware moves in terms of platforms. So if you think about it, you had the Windows and Mac platform in the 80s and 90s. You had two winners, Microsoft and Apple over there. And then with smartphones, uh, again, Apple was a winner and the non-Apple standard was Google. And with 3D, it looks like Apple is going to be one of the winners and the non-Apple standard is going to be Meta. You think you can call this race so early? Before Vision Pro is even released, you're confident that it's the market leader in the same way? It's going to evolve. When historically, since they, people try to couple it with the phone in as many ways as they can, I think it's going to be one Apple standard and one non-Apple standard ecosystem, which is going to win. And 
since I live in the Valley, I have many friends who work at Google and Meta and all. And the Google folks are a little bit concerned right now, thinking Meta is winning the non-Apple standard thing for 3D. And this I heard from people who work at Google right now. I think there's a very high chance it will be Apple and one non-Apple standard. And going back to robotics, right? So 10 years from now, we'll probably have a robot in our homes helping uh, us with our home chores, like cooking and cleaning and on. Uh, and there's going to be two big companies who will likely be winners in that market. And they'll make money of the software, which goes on top of the hardware as well. And there'll be an app store. There'll be lots of people developing for it. But even the examples you gave, so it seems the talk of like computers to smartphones, VR is the natural next layer from that standpoint. But if you're thinking of robotics, I would have thought you'd be thinking of like home devices or something where Amazon and Alexa seems to have been, if you were to talk about one of the standards, like the robotic space doesn't necessarily follow. Yeah, I think there's also a wild card in the form of Tesla, which has been doing some work on robots and stuff. So it's hard to tell if there's going to be an Apple and a non-Apple standard there. Maybe we'll have Tesla in there. But I think of a robot as something which which has got actuators and moves and stuff. And so far, Amazon has done some work on robotics, but I don't know how much they want to get into consumer products, which go to every person. So maybe they will. Maybe they'll compete with Apple and Google in that space. They just bought Roomba, right? And then they have their driverless car, CarPlay. And they've been automating their warehouses as well. So it's not clear who's going to win that market, but there is a market for home, a robot assistant, which is five or 10 years away and the space is up for grabs. What brought you to transition from a robotics-based startup to AI education? Talk me through how that transition happens. Yeah, I have two kids. My kids are now 11 and 8, but... When we started Professor Jim, my younger kid was five. And those were the times when her school expected her to sit in front of a computer seven hours a day watching Zoom classes. And it wasn't working very well. My daughter has a slide in her room and she was playing on the slide more than sitting in front of the laptop listening. And she used to frequently crash my meetings at work as well. I had Zoom meetings in the next room and she used to get bored and keep running into my room. And so I actually sat through some of her classes and they were so incredibly boring. I was like, we should do something about it. And so I started thinking, hey, maybe we should be using AI to make it easier to teach online content. And that's how Professor Jim got started. And this was 2020 before all the hype and plays on chat GPTs. And because we started in 2020 and we could actually get basic patterns on the technology. So we've got several pieces of fairly basic IP in the space on AI and education and creating video for that. It's like fascinating that pandemic really opened up the education system looked like from the inside in a way that I think a lot of people were oblivious to previously. So I think there's a lot more people thinking about, okay, what is actually happening in these schools? There's a lot more that can be done, a lot more relevant material that can be taught. I think parents are now much more engaged and being more thoughtful about that process. Yeah, for sure. And you see your kids' education close up because I've never sat in one of my kids' classrooms, right? And so I think we were exposed to what they're really learning. And, and the teachers are really good. When you meet them in person, they're so charismatic. But the whole online medium as such, it just 
takes away their hand gestures. It takes away some of their personality as well. It's hard to make those things shine through media. And many times teachers often aren't trained on good lighting in their rooms and having good equipment as well. Like I've got three lights in my room, okay, shining on my face, but many teachers don't even have a single light in there. So I think you look fantastic. Thank you. My wife would like to hear that. But also, it's not just the teacher because it's not just a one-way communication. The kids as well, they're also learning, picking up on the social cues when they make a comment in class or how they're talking. You lose a lot in the online medium, especially as the ages get younger. For sure. And with my younger daughter, she was a COVID baby. She started school when COVID happened and she was more shy compared to my older one. Because she never really interacted with other kids her age until the pandemic ended. And thankfully, she's caught up now. But I think the pandemic's going to have a lasting impact on social skills of kids. And even though I might be running a company selling online learning, I actually believe in-person school is hugely important because it helps build social skills. uh, And people are more engaged with in-person learning. Uh, You see the teacher real time. There's There's magic in it. So... I think in-person learning is here to stay. So let's dive into the AI part of this, because I think it's fascinating that Prof. Jim has been in this space since before everyone cared. It's a perfect example of obviously the future and what we're talking about here. So talk to me a little bit about when ChatGPT first kind of came out, there was a lot of strong reactions, especially within the education space. There were public school districts like New York and Los Angeles that banned it. There was a lot of talk about cheating, how people are using this. Given your experience in this space, how do you think about how AI and education mix together and where you see Prof. Jim actually playing a role there? Yeah, so with ChatGPT, it's kind of unfortunate how so many kids are using it for cheating with their homework. And since the cheating is so prevalent, it actually encourages kids to continue cheating with other things in life. And that's not good. So... Like all technologies, it's got pros and cons. It all depends on how it's used. For instance, there are some people who now use ChatGPT to write stuff. And if you ask them to write regular stuff without using ChatGPT, it doesn't sound as good. So they're not building up their skills there. What GPS Maps did to us, I used to have a great sense of direction before I started using Google Maps. That hits very close to home (laughs) because I also had the same thing. I've been here three years in North Carolina and I still have my directions in every other place I've been. I have such an intuitive map of where I live. I completely blame GPS on this. Yeah, for sure. The way I see all this evolving is in a couple of years, we're going to have these personal assistants helping us with a lot of our tasks. Chat GPT is just the first version of that. You're going to see other versions which get more and more powerful. If I'm not surprised, Microsoft will have its own personal assistant as well, which you'll have on your work computer. And we're going to be increasingly dependent on these assistants. And we're going to lose some of our skills, but they'll make us more productive. I was just speaking with one of the value programmers at Google last week. Apparently, he's seeing about a 2x improvement in his uh, productivity by using coding co-pilots. So people are going to get a lot more productive, but they might lose some of their skills. And again, 
if someone else is being your assistant and doing a lot of work for you, you wonder what their motives are, what their revenue models, you'd start thinking about how they monetize your information and data. So these are all things we need to be very careful about. I think we're going to yeah. see more and more regulation with these things with time. And I think you're also going to see a bunch of copyright issues emerging because a lot of these things that yes. drain without really asking for permission, as the hype cycle continues, you're going to see more and more uh, angst about data being yeah. misused. I think to the earlier point about productivity, there's, yeah, I think we really have to separate two categories, which is one, like the Google engineer being 2x productive. If you're already an engineer at Google, you already have developed the necessary skills. You are already a high, top 1% coder. So there's using the tools once you've developed the skills. And then there's the category of people, the future coders who are studying computer science now who want to become. And whether they develop the skills or not in this new environment is going to be a different question. So I think it's clearly beneficial to excellent writers to be able to use this as a brainstorming partner to help you iterate more quickly. And there's a whole host of benefits. But if you have not yet developed the writing seal, if you're a student that aspires to be a writer, then it's much less clear how you in integrate this into your learning experience in the best way. Yeah, I think there's some interesting applications. I've got a team where not everyone is super comfortable in English and they often don't contribute that much on Teams or Slack because they're worried about the English not being great. And if they have tools like this to edit their English, maybe they'll participate more in discussions. I think that would be a pretty interesting use case. And in fact, one of these engineers I have whose English is not the greatest in the world, he once contributed to a great marketing campaign. And I was like, hey, how come you did such a good job with this? I didn't realize you have such talent. And he's, oh, it's the power of chat GPT. It's interesting how it's bringing out new skills in people just because it's making them more comfortable with language. Where do you think this looks in two years? So it feels like with the Gen AI hype cycle, like we've already peaked and now you're seeing layoffs at some of the companies that raise at such high valuations. And people are really beginning to think, how do I actually use the tech? Where do you see it going in like a year or two years? Yeah, so... With some of the technologies I've seen in the past, it was clear there was a lot of hype. There is a lot of hype with AI as well, but I'm seeing commercial applications with this. I work with this stuff day in, day out. So Microsoft just announced how they're going to charge $30 a month or something just for these AI tools. Uh, it's going to make, if you look at the ROI of that $30 a month, if it takes you 10 minutes to create a presentation instead of one hour like it used to before, and each employee of yours costs $100,000 or $200,000 a year, the ROI is pretty easy to justify there. The issue I see right now is most companies have almost no mode at all. Anyone can copy what they're doing, and a lot of them work of the same base, GPT-4 or any other LM. And they've raised at some pretty insane valuations and without a mode, they're just going to be copied by someone else. I don't see too many technical founders who know much about AI in the education space. People just use GPT and they build something which takes me three hours to build and they make it a company. And when I look at all that, <laughs> I shake my head and I'm like, dude, I can copy you in four hours, right? And they're like, yeah, but we're first to market. So... 
from an investing perspective, what I encourage investors whom I speak with is to look for technical skills and the ability to create differentiation in a mode that's going to determine who wins and who fails. We were at ASCGSV in April and I was saying, oh, I don't think English literacy with prompt engineering is going to be the most important skill because you'll need English to actually do the prompts. And you corrected that. Can you say a little bit more about why that is not necessarily a technically astute view? So from a prompt engineering perspective, someone needs to think logically and prompt the AI. The logic seems to matter more than the English knowledge. I don't know if the English skill makes a big difference. And you were also what... saying that the, the prompts like you use are like two pages long. They're not just like three sentences. Require It's much more technical. Yeah. So with prompts themselves, yeah, our prompts are like two pages long and the prompts are getting bigger and bigger as companies give longer prompt windows. And you have Technologies like chain of thought prompting, where you give a series of prompts to lead the AI to a useful decision point. There are some people who use multiple large language models, have one, have the two models work together to create something and the two models are trained differently. You can do a lot of processing after the prompt as well. GPT is now providing fine tuning where you can give more data. The way I see it going longer term is people are going to try to put more and more proprietary data in here. And each company is going to try to have their own proprietary data informing that decision. We'll have these general purpose LLMs, which are trained on the whole internet, but you'll also have LLMs, which are trained on each company's content, which give good results for that company as well. So I think we'll see both take off. The natural follow-up question to your previous responses, tell me a little bit about Prof Gem and what's the moat for you and what is your view in terms of the education space? Books used to be predominantly text-based 10 or 20 years back. And then we saw Audible take off, audiobooks take off. And it's now a $5 billion market. The next frontier is really video books where you have video versions of books. And there's lots of studies with Gen Z, people of age 10 to 25 which indicate that these people prefer learning through video than reading traditional textbooks. So what our product does is it can take any traditional textbook and it can convert it into interactive video automatically. So Im imagine creating courses that directly from a textbook. So that's the product we've released so far. We have other products in the pipeline, which are going to come out which are hugely exciting, but giving textbook publishers a way to convert their books into courses is hugely transformative. It helps them appeal to the current generation of learners. We are in fact working with five of the top 10 textbook publishers in the world right now. And we are seeing huge interest. And if you think about it, Coursera has around 5,000 courses or so, and they're valued at a billion dollars not too long back. If you look at textbook publishers like uh, McGraw-Hill and others, they have 200,000 books. Even if you convert a fraction of them into courses, that's more courses than Coursera. And that's a huge market opportunity, which is untapped right now. So we've got pretty basic patents on this space. The U.S. Patent Office has given us patents for converting these books into avatar videos. And that's one of our biggest modes in that if someone else tries to work in that space, they're effectively infringing our patents because our patents are so broad. And so that's one thing. The other barrier to entry we have 
is AI engineers cost an arm and a leg. The average AI engineer in the Valley costs $400,000 a year or so. And for education companies, those costs are pretty difficult to handle. And they have to pay that much uh, to buy the good engineers away from Google and Meta. And so one of our modes is we have an engineering team in India, which has engineered some of the best schools in India. And the average cost of an engineer is dramatically lower than a typical Silicon Valley engineer. So if we can get eight engineers from the best schools in India for the cost of one engineer in a U.S. ed tech company, uh, that's hugely interesting. And so that's one of our modes as well. We can get really good talent at pretty affordable costs. And we built up a lead because when GPT-2 came out and GPT-3 came out, it was clear to me that GPT-4 would be super interesting and exciting. And I saw this back in 2020. And sure enough, in 2023, GPT-4 came out and the whole world started working on AI. But we'd seen the trend three years back. So we got a lot of basic patterns and IP and technology before everyone else started working on it. And so that lead we have is something we care a lot about. And the world is moving at 100 miles an hour right now with AI. And we are moving at 100 miles an hour as well. I hardly sleep nowadays. Uh, uh, <laughs> what is the tech stack that you guys are developing and what's owned and what do you use from yeah. others? So we have our own custom AI voice models, which we built from scratch because we tested a lot of the off-the-shelf AI voice models and they sounded quite robotic for teaching. Students are getting bored with it. So we had to build our own one. And it's the best voice you can find anywhere online. And it took us a ton of work and IP to build it. So that's one thing we are very proud of. And then with the animation, we built our own animation models. We've got a whole bunch of engineers. So we take existing things and tweak them and make them better with our own innovation added on top. With the LLMs, yeah, we do use off-the-shelf LLMs and we do work on top of it. Because GPT-4 seems like the best LM right now. If you try to create slides automatically with using GPT-4 and some content, we'll find 40% of the slides would need to be edited afterwards. Because when you're creating things at scale, it's not like one pretty demo you show to an investor. You got to get it working again and again. And so it, it needed a lot of work and our own technology built on top of GPT-4 to get to a point where a human editor doesn't need to edit much at all. Caitlin mentioned the two-page prompts, right? That's just one part of it. We had to optimize the prompts. We had to develop technology to correct errors with a lot of these LM outputs. And we have a bunch of other secret source components as well we used for this. I've noticed some Twitter threads exploding on whether GPT-4 performance is declining. And there's some different viewpoints on this. Have you seen this debate? Is that technically even possible? And do you have a point of view here? Actually, I've not been following this, but I'm not surprised if that happens because I'm guessing GPT-4 is trained on a lot of the internet and many people are starting to ask money for it. I think Reddit and Twitter are trying to make it increasingly hard for LLMs to get trained on their content. So I do see with time, the training set would need to be made smaller and smaller as more and more lawsuits show up. And I would imagine that might hit performance. I don't know if there are other reasons for it, 
I think they also try to make it faster and faster because there's a huge GPU shortage right now. And one way to make things faster is compromising on accuracy and quality. I think as things go to scale and production mode, we're going to see people make those trade-offs for speed versus quality as well. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. That's very helpful. Okay. The second is, have you seen there's this company, they released the ability to create South Park episodes simply from prompts. And they have a few episodes that they had shown. And so you are obviously in the text to video space. So tell me about where we're at text to video and how you're thinking about this. How quickly are we able to generate things and how wild can our imaginations get? I don't want to talk too much about our future roadmap right now, but believe me, in the next 10 years, you're going to see movies made automatically with AI. It's just a matter of time. The technology is getting better and better. And you'll see interesting things like Tom Cruise acting like a 25-year-old and prolonging his career. AI will do a better job than plastic surgery. They just do that with Harrison Ford. And I didn't see the movie, but I think they did that with him. It's probably yeah, as good as it will be in the future, but they, it seemed like the first attempt. Yeah, the technology behind all that, it just improving so fast. I think you'll see a lot of these actors play younger people on screen. Now, it also brings up an interesting question about teaching. You have all these faculty who retired from places like Stanford and MIT. And maybe after they turn 70, they're retired technically. So we could leverage their brand name and have them teach us either as themselves or as younger versions of themselves. And it allows them to leave their teaching for future generations as well and build a legacy. So I think there's some interesting things we can do with AI, even in the education space. So we have at Avalanche, we have a summer intern, Matthew, who helps edit these videos, among other stuff. And he's a rising sophomore in college. And I'm so impressed by him and just the younger generation of folks that you see where you're like, wow, young people who are at the forefront are really impressive and like better educated and use everything that's been built to date and fly forward. I had a 10th grader intern and I was shocked at how good she was. In 10th grade, she'd got like a bunch of projects. She'd had two jobs or something. And when I compared myself in 10th grade with her, I was like, wow. Hey, Matthew, no editing this out. You don't <laughs> have to leave. You'll have to leave your compliments in. But speaking of your high school experience, tell me one story from you in high school that was transformative for you on your journey. I'm not going to give you the kind of answer you're looking for. Okay. I'll warn you that before. I, my wife and I met in high school. So that was transformative uh. for me. Yeah. So it's probably not the answer you expected. And what was high school like? In India, you have this thing called junior college. So I did my 11th and 12th out there. And I never went to class. It's not like the U.S. where you're supposed to go to class and all. A lot of what I learned was things I learned through books myself. And so the reason why it was transformative for me is, so I went to the school called Indian Institute of Technology at this place called Madras. And a lot of the people who were trained for that, they went to all kinds of coaching classes where they had lots of people teach them. And I had to learn myself through books. And because of that, it was a big disadvantage, but long-term it's helped me in my career because if I have to learn something new, I just have to read a few books and 
I can learn myself. And probably that's why I've worked in so many areas. So I started my career in semiconductors, but I've worked on computer architecture. I've worked on robotics. I've worked on AI. I've worked on computer science. So anytime I have to work in a new area, sometimes it takes me two weeks. Sometimes it takes me six months, but I can just learn about it and I get dangerous pretty quickly. So yeah. that was transformative, the ability to learn by myself. Okay. And so how does that inform when you think your kids, you said are 11 and eight, what do you want high school to look for them? And what are you really hoping that they get out of that age period in their life? So I think today's schools, they often teach fixed curriculum and it's somewhat formulaic. What I'd love my kids to learn is for them to learn to learn by themselves. If the way the world moves is every 10 years, you need to reinvent your career, work in a new space, because everything's got a hype cycle. Everything starts off growing very fast and then growth saturates. A good career is one where every 10 years, you got to learn something totally new and change yourself. And today's education system does not really train people for that. They just teach something and they expect you to work in that for a while. Something more project-based would be something I'd find quite interesting for my kids. We have a mantra at Emily Issue and our learning model is that you have to learn to read and then you read to learn and then you learn to learn. And that's like the life cycle of learning. But one question I have for you. So Arvind and I both, like a decade ago, we invested in the Indian ed tech ecosystem. And so we're very familiar with the rigor of the J mains and what it takes to get into an IT. And one of the things I always admired about that system, like the, you have the super high stakes test that everybody has to take. And it really ensures this like merit of technical talent. And there's really nothing else like it in the world. And IITNs have done incredibly well in the technology industry. Like, how do you think about marrying the sort of like intrinsic desire for people, young people who need to learn and have lifelong learning with the power of such a high stakes, like meritocratic exam? Yeah. So the US system is very different from the D system in that it's a lot more subjective. With the IIT, it's often just based on the exam. I see pros and cons of both. With the IIT system, especially in the last few years, there's been a whole bunch of coaching centers who've tried to game the system. And what we find is they coach these people so much. Once they come into IIT, the more highly coached ones don't do as well. And once you go into the workforce, you don't have someone spoon feeding you everything. And so some of these people tend to struggle more. The other thing with all the intense coaching is if you look at the IIT classes, at least when I was there, we had a class of 120 and there were three girls or four girls because getting into IIT needs you to spend three years. Many times these coaching centers are in a different city and people live in a hostel in that city for two or three years. And if I have two girls. I would not send my daughters away from home during that teenage years for three years. Just studying from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. every yeah. day. So and because of the IAT entrance exam being like this, you're not having a class where there's 50% women, for instance. With things like computer science, women are just as good as men, right? You're not using physical strength. But that's not represented in the class composition, mainly because the coaching 
thing is so intense. I actually think the IITs might need to rethink how they do the JE and don't, not just make it an IQ-based exam and also give some sort of weightage to some EQ, but doing it without losing what they have good about the IIT system, which is it's meritocratic. So I don't know what's the best way for them to change the system, but it's something we should be thinking about. I'm curious to see where everything's going to go. Yeah, Deepak, I completely agree with that sentiment because to me, the reason why the JE mains and that system worked wonders is because it put the IITs as a university class on the map. They became this elite tier of universities that were acknowledged around the world and allowed a funnel of talent to all these places. And then you have all these incredible people and that were uncovered through this process. And you have so many of our tech CEOs, so many people creating so much value in the world through that process. But now that they have the established brand, I don't think the exam is as critical as we might think anymore. Yeah. Anytime you have a country with 1.4 billion people and you pick the top 5,000 to go to a college, you're going to get like the best of the best. So yes, yes. your point is valid there. And in fact, I might be visiting IIT this December and I'll speak with some of the faculty there. We've had some chats about all this stuff before and I'll chat with them again about it and see if there are better ideas out there. Okay, last AI question. It seems from all your answers that you're quite an AI optimist. Would you put yourself in the Mark Andreessen camp of AIs will save the world, forget all the doomers out there? Where do you put position yourself on AI as a saving force versus a force to be wary of? Yeah, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I think AI is going to be like social media. It has benefits and it's got challenges as well. And the more careful we are about how we handle it, the better it's going to be. The thing which worries me the most is massive retraining. So one example I often give is the country where I grew up, India. There's millions of low-skilled software developers. And we're going to see many of those jobs get automated away in the next five to 10 years. So if you have hundreds of thousands of software developers being churned out by all the universities, that's going to cause a massive crisis. I think the Indian government, for instance, needs to get involved and think about what industries could leverage all the software talent. Maybe it's drug discovery, maybe it's something else, but people need to act right now. Otherwise, that's going to be millions of people being jobless in 10 years. So that's just one example. Other examples of job changes are, let's you take executive assistants, for instance, they're going to be automated out of their jobs in five years. If you think about, there's so many other professions where people are going to get more productive. If people are going to get 2x more productive with what they're doing. Maybe you need to hire half as many people. There's going to be new jobs which emerge, but these people who are working in this job, which got more productive, they need to train themselves to take on this new role. And not everyone is open to getting retrained. It gets harder the older we get. I'm 40 now, and it's harder for me to change things than when I was 20, for instance. And the stakes are higher, right? Now I get paid more. And when you get paid more, starting off afresh in a different industry is harder. So I think we'll have to think about all these things. There's going to be lots of new jobs emerging after AI comes in as well. So the new jobs, which I think we'll see are 
Nostradamus uh, said, uh, you'll see AI use a fair bit in medicine. You're going to start seeing real-time translations. People are going to be able to participate in j- other job markets they couldn't access before. You're going to see new jobs emerging in robotics. If you're going to have new home robots and stuff, people have to build them. People have to program them. So there's lots of new jobs which will emerge, but they're going to need new skills. And they're going to need a higher level of education because people with lower levels of education will see some of their jobs get automated away. It's good for education companies and colleges and universities and all, but it's not going to be easier on the people involved. So that's the part I worry about the most as far as AI goes. And I'm not a big believer in universal basic income like some of the folks are saying. It encourages people to get lazy and that's not good for anyone. That's my take on it. So it's Pants called obviously the future and we're talking to visionaries like you who can see things that are obviously going to be in the future that the rest of us can't see yet. And so you decided to go a different direction with your answer to this. Good day, I am Nostradamus, considered by many to be the finest astrologer of all time. Join me in predicting the future today. How will the world look in 10 years? Will artificial intelligence be doing all our jobs? And will we humans end up watching television all day and living on universal basic income like the movie Wally predicted? Let me share my predictions. Well, there is good news and bad news. Let's do the bad news first. Software engineers, the poor sods, will end up automating many of their own jobs. Even with today's primitive artificial intelligence, there are reports that software engineers will get twice as productive using an artificially intelligent assistant. With time, this will only accelerate. Take-home message. Don't just follow the crowd and put your kids in coding class. The future is going to look very different from today. Today, a kid's first job is often in a retail store or restaurant. With robots being able to talk, listen, and navigate well, thanks to AI, many of these roles will be automated. Education will be key to your kids' success. Send them to college. Now, on to the good news. Doctors and nurses will be overwhelmingly human. That being said, artificial intelligence will assist them. Imagine a future where your artificial intelligence does a sophisticated analysis based on your gene type, symptoms as well as your metrics like heart rate, blood pressure, and temperature, and gives a first-pass analysis on your illness to the doctor. Then the doctor will use that information to make their own diagnosis. Everybody's going to have a robot in their home. A huge robotics industry will emerge. Some robots will take care of older people. Some will cook, some will clean your home, some will keep your kids occupied. Mark Zuckerberg will finally see the metaverse happen after burning through billions of dollars. And the metaverse will get more and more immersive with the passage of time. Artificial intelligence will make it easy to create three-dimensional content. Language will no longer be a barrier. Someone speaking in Swahili will see artificial intelligence auto-convert their speech to English, for example. 
This will open up jobs for people in non-English speaking countries. More and more jobs will be dedicated to reducing our deleterious effects on the planet. A few major climate catastrophes will happen and cause politicians to take action at last. These massive job changes will not be easy. People don't like retraining for new roles. We will see strikes, and not just in my hometown of Paris. The world is going to look very different in ten years. The biggest change you need to fear is change itself, I like to say. Now, before we end, let me tell you a bit of a secret. Fortune-telling has two keys to success. Number one, say something vague that people can interpret the way they want. And number two, speak with someone who has the expertise to predict how the world could evolve. Well, for this set of predictions, I spoke with my teacher colleague, at Professor Jim Deepak. So now, it is your favorite astrologer, Nostradamus, signing off. Brace yourselves for the future. So tell me about the process for developing this. Oh, so that's our technology. So we can actually create an avatar of you, which looks like you, and we can clone your voice. We have three photos of you, and it takes us about a week to add each avatar right now, but we're adding more and more automation and Hopefully, it'll get faster soon. So, yeah, I like saying we have the best teachers in the world because the teachers who teach for us include Aristotle and Nostradamus and Jane Austen yeah. and all those folks. So, it makes yeah. it a lot more fun. I made a video of Gandhi just last week. Yeah, it was nice seeing Nostradamus making predictions. I will say I, I enjoyed that process. So, the person who my company is named after, Professor Jim, he was my PhD advisor and his full name was Jim Minder. So I'll give you one example of something he said. I had this habit of not being very focused when I was in my early 20s, when I was doing my PhD. And I would often complicate things and get caught up in circles and waste my time when I was solving problems. And he quoted Bill Shockley to me and he said, do you know who Bill Shockley is? He was the person who invented the transistor. And he was three rooms away from me at Stanford when we were both teaching. And he said, Shockley had this concept called try simplest cases. And by that, he meant simplify things to as much as you can, and then you can solve problems much easier. And what Professor Jim knew was if he told me this himself, I probably wouldn't have him. But because it came from Bill Shockley, the inventor of a transistor and a Nobel Prize winner, I listened. So because it was Nostradamus, you actually listened to him more. And that's the whole concept over there. And we've yeah. tested this with students as well. Students would rather learn philosophy from Aristotle than learn philosophy from someone else. Nice. And how authentic can you get with the voices? Are you just taking a lot of liberties or how accurate are you trying to be? We can do American accents fairly well. So we just did Lincoln. The thing is, there's no audio recording of Lincoln's voice because he died 10 years before the phonograph was invented, yeah. which made our life easier. <laughs> but uh, we're trying to get actual voices of people and reproduce them. And it seems to work fairly well for American accents. The one thing is, according to copyright law, someone's passed away more than 80 years back. You can recreate them. But if it's less than a year, you need to get that permission and a contract with them before you can recreate their likeness or their voice. 
So we are not consumer facing, so we can't have people get naughty with our technology. We control it. So we always try to make sure we use early characters passed away more than 80 years back. And when we use someone's avatar, we make it clear that it's an avatar and we we say it right up front. And just like we did with Nostradamus just here, because that's the right ethics to use. We could probably get away with not saying it's an avatar, but we got to do the right thing. Yep. So you have someone scanning the 1940s obituaries to see who's up next. Yeah. <laughs> we do uh, take a look at when someone passed away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's end with our last question. So Caitlin has this list. She calls it My Younger Self. And it includes a bunch of timeless books that she would tell her younger self to read. So we're asking all our guests the same question. So can you give us one book that you'd want to share with your younger self? So I think Shoe Dog from Phil Knight. That's one of my favorites. He writes it with such a good sense of humor. And I've actually visited the Nike store and I've gone to all the Nike haunts. I wish I'd read it when I was younger. I read it probably when I was 34 or 35. Yeah, that's my choice. Fantastic choice. I think that's on Caitlin's and my list. It is yeah. on the list, so yes. that is a fantastic and well-verified choice. Yes. <laughs> Validated. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We could talk to you for hours. This has been really awesome. It was nice spending time with you, bro. 